Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rte.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on one. You're listening to RTE Radio 1. Drama on One is offered as a podcast at rte.ie slash drama on one. And of course, here on RTE Radio 1 on Sunday nights. Over the month of October, we're podcasting and broadcasting a short season of work by Samuel Beckett, introduced by Jerry Jukes. Last week, we had All That Fall and the week before that, What, adapted and performed by Barry McGovern. These plays are available to listen to or to download on the Drama on One website. And over the remaining weeks of October, we'll have the old tune and lastly, a piece of monologue. Tonight, we broadcast a special programme curated from a brace of Bowman Sunday 8.30 programmes made in 2006, celebrating the centenary of Samuel Beckett's birth. In the programme, John Bowman explores RTE archive recordings, addressing some of the myths and mysteries surrounding both Beckett and his work. We hear from friends and collaborators, including Walter Asmus, Alan Simpson, John Calder, AJ Con Leventhal, Maria Jolas, Francis Stewart, John Menahan, Patrick McGee, Billy Whitelaw, and Barry McGovern. The presenter is John Bowman. Samuel Beckett was born in Dublin on the 13th of April 1906. He died in December 1989. Beckett's work is minimalist, considered deeply pessimistic about the human condition, though leavened by humour and wit. And a question, was Samuel Beckett all that reclusive? He was in the public uh, during rehearsals in the theatre. He was in pubs. He was... uh uh, socialising with various people and so on. German theatre director Walter Asmus. As long he was left alone, he was quite a normal person. He simply uh, didn't give interviews and uh, didn't appear on television and didn't want to be filmed and so on and so on. So if you uh, see this, this as a public, or only this as a public appearance, uh, mm. he, he was forbidding, but uh, his social contacts were uh, very normal, I think. I said to him about um, this recent play that uh, I said, um, how do you think they'll take it? And he said, oh, I think that they will um, be um, tolerant but uh, mystified. Dr Geoffrey Thompson, a lifelong friend since Beckett's school days. I don't think he is obscure just for the sake of obscurity. I think that's his mode of expression. I don't think he could express himself in any other way. And uh, the more clear he became, if it's possible to conceive such a thing, I think the less he would have to say. Uh, he has told me on several occasions that um, his, his uh, actual method of writing has changed a lot over the years, that uh, it's become more and more laborious and more and more difficult and more and more slow, that he wrote Godot. Godot was produced um, here. This is a, a copy that he gave me at the time. There was... Produced first. It was produced in 1953 uh, in in Paris, and I think it was uh, first published in 1952. I think he wrote it in the win- in the winter of 51-52, and uh, he wrote that in an exercise book. He told me with um, straight off like that, starting at the beginning of the book, and um, writing just on one side of the page, right through to the end. Turned the book over and wrote back again on the other side of the pages, uh, and with very, very few corrections, uh, and completed it in a very short time. But I remember at the time that it came out, when I was talking to him about this, he said that um, 
It, it was written with great facility and fluidity, and uh, but when it was finished, he could hardly remember having written it, and he made very few corrections in it. But as he's gone on writing, uh, he's had to put more and more work into it. It's come less uh, easily to him, and um, it's almost as if he feels that the, as he goes on, the distance that he has, the freedoms that he has at his disposal, becomes less and less. And his work is, uh, his writing has become, come to involve much more work and labor now than it used to do, and have much more corrections. Beckett's publisher, John Calder, in Seamus Hosey's program, All the Dead Voices, compared Beckett to St. Francis of Assisi. Well, I think there's a great many comparisons to be made between them. First of all, uh, St. Francis of Assisi was not only a saint, but also a, um, a, a humanist who uh, attacked the corruption and the materialism of his own age. And I think Beckett does exactly the same thing today, but in a, in a rather different uh, way, of course. But there's something very saint-like about Beckett. I mean, he's uh, very worried about the state of humanity, and he describes the state of humanity. Uh, and um, I think he shows us a way to, uh, to be nicer to each other than we are. And, and all his plays and his novels, really, uh, carry the same message, that life is uh, pretty terrible, and most of us have to live it but that we can share our problems and we can share our anxieties and that um, just uh, being kind to other people uh, relieves the tension to a great extent. You know, I think there are great parallels between their lives. I mean, they both came from uh, fairly well-off families and both uh, simply uh, rejected normal comforts and luxuries uh, which they could have had in order to live rather uh, simple monastic lives. And Beckett... Um, has, uh, I mean, he's, he's never more uncomfortable than when he's in a very luxurious restaurant or a very luxurious uh, setting. But he lives extremely simply. I mean, his uh, his uh, flat in Paris is like a monk's cell, and uh, he lived almost entirely inside his own mind. So I think the comparisons there are very great. But of course, I went into uh, his work to find parallels. Saint Francis uh, sold his coat in order to save a, a, a lamb from being slaughtered and bought it from the butcher. And it's exactly the kind of thing that, uh, that Beckett would do. In fact, in Godot, at one point where I made the comparison, uh, Vladimir takes off his coat to, uh, to cover Estragon when he falls asleep, although he himself is, 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 is very cold and has to keep walking up and down. So I found a lot of comparisons rather like that. In the meantime, let us try and converse calmly, since we're incapable of keeping sight. You're right, we're inexhaustible. It's so we won't think. We have that excuse. So we won't hear. We have our reasons. All the dead voices. They make a noise like wings. Like leaves. Like sand. Like leaves. They all speak together. Each one to itself. Rather, they whisper. They rustle. They murmur. They rustle. What do they say? They talk about their lives. To have lived is not enough for them. They have to talk about it. To be dead is not enough for them. It's not sufficient. They make a noise like feathers, like leaves. The only way to play Beckett is totally simply on the line, on the word, use the text. Actor Patrick McGee on playing Beckett. Any half-wit who follows the stage directions of any Beckett play absolutely to the letter cannot fail. 
Is it an advantage to have Sam Beckett around to, an, to, to watch? An enormous advantage to have Sam Beckett around. To have Sam Beckett around, even if he's not to do with the play, just to have Sam Beckett around is an enormous advantage. The man has courage, dignity and good manners. And he's very funny and he's very witty. And I love him dearly. Well, how does he help during a play, during rehearsal? He helps by making things simpler, by clarifying things. Things which look enormously difficult, he can clarify, simplify, make clearer. That's how he helps. I mean, I've never worked without him. The actress Billy Whitelaw worked alongside Beckett during rehearsals of his plays. This is the first time, actually, I've just worked with him alone, nobody else there. And I just feel safe. Uh, I know he knows what he wants. He seems to, he gives me the feeling that he thinks that I can give him what he wants. And he works with with such love in the, in the, in the, the, in the full meaning of the word. Um, and he wants you to get there. He wants you to, to do it. And he wants you to hit the right notes and the right rhythms. And obviously one trusts him implicitly. And, and I think perhaps he, he gives me the feeling anyway that he trusts me to actually, I will get there perhaps, if not by the opening night a week later. Hugh Kenner was the first academic to publish a critical appraisal of Beckett's work. His central preoccupation is probably the nature of sincerity. What are you doing when you are making a statement that comes from your deepest self? And is there a self beneath that self? The books and the plays increasingly confront a character with voices coming from deeper and deeper levels of his own being so that he does not know himself where they are coming from, is astonished by these voices and is accused by them. I think that in this man of genius there is a great deal more laughter than we sometimes allow or than some of the brilliant productions would let the spectator know. The critic George Steiner emphasised the huge academic literature extant. So many books about Samuel Beckett, his alleged nihilism, his vision of a desperate world coming to an end. If we think on some of the geniuses of the silent film, and I have Buster Keaton particularly in mind, or the never-speaking, omnipresent Harpo Marx, if we think back on the routines of slapstick which they develop we see something very fascinating, which art really didn't show before, that there can be, perhaps I don't find the right word here, a slapstick of the mind, that there can be a clowning of the brain with wonderfully intricate routines of custard pie on the nose and the wall falling down when Buster Keaton takes his hand away, shocks of verbal acrobatics which are at once profoundly pathetic and wonderfully funny. Arland Usher, philosopher and writer, wrote these notes, his assessment of Beckett, Beckett's reputation and his own memories of their friendship in Trinity as students in the 1920s. He was nearly always the best of company, but I have sometimes thought his theatre might be described as Hamlet, not without the prince, but without any characters except the grave-digger clowns. 
Certainly the churchyard scene in Hamlet, slightly modernised, would make an excellent Beckett play. Anyhow, his almost un unprecedented success in life, greater than that of any serious writer I have heard of, throws an ironical light on his philosophy of inevitable failure and the impossibility of communication. Perhaps the fact that I always preferred Sam the talker and thinker to, Be to Beckett the dramatist makes me see him a bit out of perspective. I have known many Beckett characters, especially here in Dublin, Watts, Luckies, Malones, Malloys, and what have you, but Beckett himself was certainly never a Beckett character. It amuses me to recall my many arguments with Sam when we were both young, in the certainly rather depressing and censorship-wooden atmosphere of that time. I would maintain that writing should essentially be communication, a letter addressed to someone, even to a few, whereas Sam insisted that it was no more than a physiological function like sweating. In this, I think, he was perfectly sincere, and he would have written as he did if he had never enjoyed a public or an audience. And it should always be remembered that success did not come to him till he was almost in his fifties. But in the end he got his public with a vengeance, so that time has proved him right, and those who care too much about achievement are the least likely to achieve it. The only question is whether the public he found is exactly the one he did not want. To adapt a famous saying, Sam's motto may be said to have been, travelling hopelessly is worse than not arriving. But perhaps it may be said that he ultimately arrived thanks to his utter realisation of the apparent hopelessness of his journey. I have said that, that Beckett has hit on a new way of saying nothing. But you must spell that nothing with a capital N, as in the title of one of Yeats's poems, Where there is nothing, there is God. And to utter that nothing is not at all as easy as it may sound. Given that qualification, I think Beckett himself might possibly agree with my rudeness. But perhaps there is an alternative to waiting for Godot, waiting for the miracle, or to go hunting for the snark. A Buddhist might sit down at the crossroads with his begging bowl and enjoy an inner peace, an inner nothing. But that, of course, would not make such a good drama. Beckett's world is really a satire on the hopeless enterprise of man. Dr. Geoffrey Thompson, another friend of Beckett's in his Dublin days, shared with Beckett an interest in the theatre. I cannot identify too clearly particular uh, goings to the theatre with Sam, except one, uh, where he and I, 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 I'm sure he was with me, but certainly he made this comment on this particular play. We went to a play called Autumn Fire, which was by T.C. Murray. It was a very good play of its kind, and it, of course it was brilliantly acted. And one of the f famous Abbey actors, Michael Dolan, carried the part of a middle-aged farmer who was full of strength and virility and who had a young wife. And then he met with an accident and his virility uh, disappeared 
and uh, tragedy overtook his family um, as a result of, the, of his ageing rapidly. And I remember Sam remarking at that time, seeing Michael Do- Dolan acting, about how much his hands came into expressing his feelings when, as a um, man who was maimed and stricken, he uh, had all these uh, tragic occurrences falling upon him. Another friend, and to remain a close friend for the rest of their lives, was the writer and critic A.J. Con Leventhal. He recalled their first meeting as students. Fairly clearly, it was um, in Duke Street, uh, at the top of um, what at one time was a French bookshop, where, um, I won't forget names, unfortunately, uh, but this, this man wrote a, wor- a work on Irish archaeology, and uh, he, he lived there and had a, an evening. In those days, one had evenings. It wasn't just confined to, to, um, to Russell or to Yeats, but people did, did have evenings, and on this evening, all sorts of people turned up. And he was there with quite a number of other people, a student in Trinity, uh, he um, certainly took a, a tremendous interest in what was what was happening. I think he once told me he contributed some money for the starting of a paper, which course never started at all. Those things, those days, one always had projects. The projects rarely came to anything, or if they ever came, well, they lasted for about six months or a year. And uh, that, anyway, was the time I met him. He he behaved like most students. A, an interest in things and since I met him you see, through Trinity later and, you know, that's, that thing I always, I always remember that's really how, how I got to know him for the first time and, uh, Some people still remembered him he, as a colleague and even as a pupil Professor Arno, sometime professor of French at TCD, recalling Beckett's reputation, not high for his work, which he finally quit as a lecturer in French at Trinity College. And uh, one important, one well-known pupil of Beckett's, as far as I remember, was uh, the old Sheers Kevington. And what I remember is that uh, uh, Owen, as I called him naturally, for whom I had great admiration, (laughs) I don't know if he'd learned many things from Beckett, but uh, he didn't seem to think he had. In fact, he mentioned to me that Beckett had a special technique in his lectures. And I was reminded of what uh, Skevington told me when I read an article quite recently in the Irish Times uh, about the latest book, I think it is, of Beckett called Footfalls. Because he said there, uh, if I remember rightly, (laughs) um, that um, the word pause is printed over a hundred times in the book. And Skeffington told me that the technique of Beckett was to speak and think even more than he was uh, speaking. And therefore there were very long pauses between sentences. And uh, Skeffington, who was a lively sort of chap and anxious to carry on a discussion, you see, apparently didn't quite agree with that. It was not the same uh, personality. And Arlen Usher recalled... Beckett's difficulties as a lecturer in these years, immediately after graduation. I believe he he lectured just the way he spoke in private, with many silences and then sudden bursts into speech. He had every reason to be very bitter at the Ireland in which he grew up. 
Barry McGovern recalled an admission in later life by Beckett about his short period as an academic in Trinity. He, he tried to assimilate himself into this kind of world, but eventually, I mean, he was in Trinity. And as he said to me in one of my first meetings with him, he, he left after two terms. He just, he, he just said Trinity, lecturing in Trinity, he just said in one word, he summed it up, fiasco. I knew that he wanted to go to Paris, and uh, that's a disease which I've found uh, uh, among several people, including, incidentally, a very great friend of uh, Beckett's, namely Leventhal. Professor Arno again. Beckett told me once that uh, now he couldn't live in Ireland, but uh, I don't know what he meant by that, actually. He likes Ireland all the same. He admired many things here. And Leventhal, when he was here, he did retire before, long before his time. And he told me when he went that it had been his life-long uh, uh, ambition to live in Paris. And he has been living in Paris since, and uh, Beckett has been extremely kind to him. And I know that when, say, an American came to inquire about Beckett, you see, he immediately sent uh, the fellow to Leventhal, who was very glad to oblige, naturally. It was something to do for him. <laughs> but of course, um, I really knew Sam in a way best because we shared certain things in our outlook. Orbd French emphasised Beckett's love of Trinity College in Dublin, despite his failure there as an academic. But one thing was that, because he venerated Trinity College, that was one thing which put him, so to speak, on my side, because I did myself. He had tremendous respect and, as I say, really veneration for it. And this goes on, because if you meet him now, he'd always at once start asking about people. It's rather, in a way, it struck me, rather like Joyce keeping in touch with Dablin in his exile, you know. But he'd always ask you, first of all, about how is so-and-so, and have you seen so-and-so lately? And uh, what's happening to somebody else? You know, always full of curiosity in that way. He loved talking about it. And then, of course, he showed a great deal of generosity uh, towards the college in some particular ways, I remember. Uh, one thing was that it's a number of years ago now that uh, it may be remembered we had a large campaign, a great campaign, to increase the college library, to build a new building and all this kind of thing. And, of course, funds had to be raised for that, and I was mixed up in this very considerably, and we raised quite a lot of money and so on. And I remember Sam, as his contribution, uh, giving us the American rights of Crap's last tape. I think they were called off-Broadway rights or something of that kind. And we simply got the rights of those, and they amounted to a very considerable sum, and there really was a large, a large amount of money. And we had that from him. Then later, oh, some years later than that, the curator of the manuscript room in the library telephoned me one day and said, um, we are trying to do something about improving our collection of contemporary writers. And it's just occurred to me, do you think that possibly um, Sam Beckett could give us something, you see? So I said, well, I don't know, but um, I can always write to him if you like. So he said, yes, do that, and... Uh, see what happens. So I wrote to him and um, rather sort of modestly put this as has been suggested that he might have perhaps something knocking about you know. And he wrote back a very nice letter and he said that unfortunately the rights in his manuscripts are all tied up with his American agent and he wasn't a free agent himself in the matter you know so I'm very much afraid I haven't got anything for you unless of course I could find some, I'm afraid there'd be mere scraps of nonsense lying about the floor, this kind of thing 
welcome to those, of course. So, <laughs> it's easy to see what my answer was. Kindly send scraps. Whereupon a large parcel eventually arrived, and um, this turned out to be all sorts of queer things. Um, ideas that came into his head, and he'd worked on them for a short time and put them aside. Or uh, first drafts of plays or books, you know, chapters of them, or the whole thing, perhaps. Correct drafts, and this kind of thing. And everything written in the, his atrocious handwriting, which is bad enough when he writes to you and expects you to be able to read it, but it's really incredible that he's working on his own. And all this will be pleasantly decorated by little dabblers, or whatever the word is, of animals who looked as if they came out of the book of Carols, you know, this kind of thing. And um, so, at any rate, he sent this, and to put it in a material way, that is, apart from being of immense interest to scholars, looking at first drafts and changes of ideas and so on, I suppose that if you look at it in a monetary way, it must be worth at least a thousand pounds, I think, that, without exaggeration. So that, I thought, was very generous. Or BD French. The popular image we have of Samuel Beckett is that of a recluse, living and writing away from the public gaze. But this is one-dimensional. He had a wide circle of friends. What he did want was to control his working day, to remain a private person, and not to find himself with any obligation to explain his work. It spoke for itself. For a photographer, he's a dream. The man has a fantastic eagle-shaped uh, face, very Irish face. Beckett, who did not allow his voice to be recorded, did allow himself to be photographed, famously by Jane Bone of The Observer, and, as you hear here, by John Minahan from Athai, the distinguished photographer whose iconic images of Beckett are known around the world and have been seen nationally on billboards during the Beckett centenary. I mean, there's great photographs of, of Beckett, but he's very easy man to photograph and indeed likes the camera. I suspect he probably likes the camera more than his own voice, which he still has that, you know, slight Dublin look to it. I found the man very give, giving. Um, he was very uh, hospitable to me uh, because I don't talk to him about his work. I'm not a Beckettian scholar. I'm a photographer. He's an Irishman. I'm an Irish photographer, and I wanted to photograph him. He'd seen my work in a thigh, and um, from that moment on, the relationship was based on, like, what's the price of a pint of Guinness in Dublin? Um, uh, have you been back lately? Uh, he helped me, um, and that was great. I mean, that was nice. Beckett was difficult to reach. He had a telephone, but gave nobody the number. His phone did not ring. It made outgoing calls only. There is a third man besides the public and the private, and that is the media image of Beckett. This is Colm O'Brien, recalling a period when he was director of the Arts Council. But it's an entirely media construct. It doesn't relate to the man, it doesn't relate to his works, because his lifestyle wasn't such that gave the tittle-tattle, the uh, kind of bric-a-brac of modern journalism mm. about his private life, about his work, about so forth, where he was mixing, what parties he was at. The media had to construct this austere man. But he was not austere. Was he not? No. Now, you, you met him, Colm, didn't you? you once. I once. met him once in 1983. And I believe he was very accommodating to people who visited or wrote to him. Well, I wrote to him saying I was coming to Paris and I'd like to have a discussion with him about Aistana, which was what I wanted to discuss with him. Mm. Uh, and uh, when I arrived in Paris, he phoned me in the hotel and said, come round in the morning. He phoned you? Yes. And uh, um, I spent a morning with him. Uh, as I say, my, the purpose of my meeting with him was to discuss the whole background to the setting up of Aistana. 
and hopefully to persuade him even to consider coming back to Dublin for the first meeting. Um, but of course, it was a, a vain task. He, mm. The idea of returning to Dublin seemed almost beyond uh, consideration was for it? him. Yeah. Was he gracious in his refusal? Oh, he was extremely gracious and one, very good company. I was very nervous. I don't drink black coffee. But throughout the meeting, I think I drank four cups of very strong espresso coffee because that's what he drinks. But I'm not a coffee drinker at all. So I was, I was rattling after leaving him as he went off to watch a rugby match on television. Beckett managed to keep the media at bay. Because they knew he would decline all requests for interviews, they largely left him alone. He was filmed in rehearsal for some of his theatrical productions. There were some moments, outspoken moments, and some of them in public, which, while not recorded, were witnessed and remembered. At the conclusion of his arts show special on Beckett's 80th birthday, Mike Murphy asked the German theatre director, Walter Asmus, for his most memorable moment with Beckett. Uh, we were sitting in this cafe in uh, Paris one day, and we talked about uh, Goddard who come uh, in... Uh, New York on Broadway and there were difficulties with Dustin Hoffman and the cast and so on and he jumped up from his chair pointed out his bony forefinger and shouted through the cafe fuck Broadway (laughs) (laughs) when he failed as a teacher in Trinity he went to Paris while there he was introduced to James Joyce by Thomas McGreevy this meeting profoundly affected Beckett's career for a time he was an assistant to Joyce. Joyce did on occasions enjoy gaiety. He liked to give parties. Maria Jolas, a friend and supporter of James Joyce, also knew Beckett. These were occasions more than often organised by Joyce himself when uh, we would meet together and on those occasions I would see Beckett. In fact, Beckett's first short story, Assumption, was published in 1929 in Eugène Jolas's periodical transition. Uh, I'm obliged to say that he was something of a spectator. He would uh, sit quietly, spoke very quietly. Generally, he was involved in dialogue uh, rather than in general conversation. Although there was a feeling of warmth and sympathy, practically never any actual demonstration of his own enjoyment, as there was, shall we say, with Joyce, who liked to sing and, as I say, dance and so forth. Andrew Gandley, a friend from boyhood, from school days, told Kieran Sheedy that Beckett's own family were not optimistic that he would ever succeed as a writer in Paris. The feeling, I gather about the family, about Sam, was, well, that he wasn't going to make good in the traditional, respectable way which is expected of the sons of well-placed Protestant families. And I believe he was given a certain amount of money by his father to go and spend as he wanted, in a sense, given his patrimony, I think his father, although he didn't understand Sam at all, realised he'd produced some kind of creature which was different from himself. And he gave Sam, I think, a certain amount of money and said, or may have been an allowance, and said, go and live as you will. This is what you're getting. And Sam took this and went off to Paris. I think he was completely and absolutely 
absolutely a dedicated writer. If he couldn't succeed as a writer, he didn't want to succeed in anything else. He would have been quite content to be recognised as a failure as a writer. He would rather have been a failed writer than a successful anything else. He only had the one idea and the ambition was to be a, to be a writer. And what of Beckett's friendship with Lucia, Joyce's daughter, Maria Jolas? Well, that has been a, a sort of a morbid uh, point of interest uh, by, on the part of, of a good many people who since have uh, delved deeper than it seems to me is almost decent into Joyce's own life and uh, in that of everybody around him. Uh, I have been frequently asked uh, whether or not uh, there was a, an engagement to be married between uh, Lucia Joyce and Sam Beckett, and my honest answer is that I don't think there was. Uh, but uh, I do know that, that the presence of Beckett, along with other young men in Joyce's household, was uh, frequent, and that uh, Lucia was extremely friendly with them all, and that it just happens that Sam is the one who has survived. Sam is the one who, during the terrible war years, after Joyce's death, was the first to return to France. He realized that Lucia was entirely isolated from her mother and her brother and other friends who could have been assistance to her. And he took it upon himself to see that, that uh, she did have some contact with her past. And I think that he has been, uh, in fact, I know because I'm in contact with her myself and I hear from her and I know that he is uh, frequently mentioned as having sent her this or that and has continued through across the years to show her the kindness that her father or her mother would have shown her. Beckett finished writing his novel Murphy in 1936. It was to be published two years later. Meanwhile, he travelled around Germany, where he was unimpressed by the politics of that time. He returned to Ireland for a period, then went back to Paris after the outbreak of war in 1939, preferring, as he put it, France at war to Ireland neutral. He started writing Watt in 1941, completed it in 1945. It was not published until 1953. The novelist Francis Stewart, then teaching in Berlin University, was in correspondence with Beckett at this time. I remember one passage especially, still, because uh, it had a, a special relevance to me as a writer. He said, uh, I've nearly finished a novel. And then he added, that's to say, I've done the first chapter. Well, that struck me, uh, I understood it completely because I don't know whether all novelists write like that, but for me, if I've done a chapter of a novel, I could almost say I've nearly finished it, because that means a whole meditative work, uh, which may take well take months, that has gone before, then, then the planning, and then the getting something down onto paper. And if you've got as, as much as a chapter done, there is a sense in, in which the, the thing is certainly more than half done. During the late 1940s and early 1950s, Beckett wrote his best-known novels, Malloy, Malone Dies, and The Unnameable. But his most famous work was for the stage. 
Waiting for Godot, once described by the critic Vivian Mercier as a play in which nothing happens. Twice. It was published in 1952, premiered in Paris in 1953. The English translation came two years later. What yeah. is essentially Irish to me is the rhythm, the cadences of the speech, the phrasing. Colm O'Brien. Now, even plays he originally wrote in French. In yeah. the English version, I just hear a Dublin voice. Alan Simpson staged the first English-language production of Waiting for Godot at Dublin's small, experimental Pike Theatre. The way I came across it really was um, I'd heard about Sam a bit from various literary figures in Dublin, but I didn't know he was a playwright or anything like or had any intention of doing that. And a girl in the French Cultural Centre, which was uh, behind the Pike, asked me if she could translate it. She'd heard about it in Paris. And I wrote to Sam, and he sent me his own translation, which he had done uh, for American publication by Grove Press. And I was absolutely riveted by it. I, I uh, found it, the dialogue uh, absolutely gripping and totally exciting. And uh, I haven't changed my mind since. Uh, what is uh, very important in any production of Beckett is timing. Colm O'Brien again. And that's where Music Hall excels. Now, obviously, straight actors, the legit theatre, likes to do Beckett, and uh, great actors have come from the from the theatre into Beckett and made his material their own. But the sort of the history of people in Music Hall who have responded to Beckett's material is, I think, because timing is so important, and in the Music Hall, timing is everything. And I think that's that's the other as well as the clowning aspect of it. The uh, uh, the sort of genre that Beckett yeah. is most comfortable in is in something as almost as flat, as straight on, as direct as musical. Academic Hugh Kenner, who got close to Beckett, never recalled him speaking about Ireland. It never, com- it never comes up spontaneously. I have had just recently a card from him containing the statement that he will not come to Dublin ever again. That's the only explicit statement about Ireland I've ever heard from him. The 1960s brought fame and international acclaim. He secretly married his wife Suzanne in 1961, thus regularising their long-standing relationship. Their motive was to accommodate to French inheritance law. He began a new career as a theatre director. He won the Nobel Prize for Literature. Lives, uh, I think, more quietly now than, than he used to. Con Leventhal, a friend from his Trinity days, who also lived in Paris. He was more social when he was younger, and with the years became not, not less social, because he's, he's all right as a companion, but uh, not moving about, uh, around, I mean, uh, as he used to. He moved around for social, literary and artistic reasons, and met people. With fame, he was more pursued... And, uh, and hence didn't have to pursue. And, and, and the result is that he lives a rather quiet life, and, but has to take refuge on occasion. He takes the immediate defences are very good. I mean, you just can't get him on the telephone. He has a, a gadget by which he, he can phone, but others can't phone him, which is very safe. It's not enough, you see, to, to be excluded from the telephone book because numbers get around. And so he has a scheme. And he, a further scheme, I um, mean, is to disappear to his country house. He's got a small country place which he's had built for himself, very spare, very sparse. 
hardly any furniture, but, but a piano, because he plays, and uh, I suppose television. He's in touch with the world, but can be completely alone because few people know where it is, and, and it's not easy to get at. I don't know how much he reads of um, new writing. We don't when I see him uh, discuss current writing very much. His publisher and friend, John Calder. Certainly, I think he goes back and rereads the classics very often. He's got a, he was, above all, a Dante scholar as a student. He has a great many favourites. I know that Effie Briest is a very favourite book of his. I think that he goes back to the old books rather more. Certainly, he's um, always has Joyce very close to him. I've discussed various writers with him, but very seldom his contemporaries. He's always refused to write prefaces for books of other writers, even if they're friends of his, because he says, how can I do it for one and not for another? And he's too honest a man to be able to to flatter, to say something that he doesn't uh, totally feel. So the only way to um, never give any embarrassment is just to refuse everybody, and I think he's wise. His own writing became a subject of interest to academics, especially after he won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1969. Although it's been said that he had a great distaste for the whole academic industry, John Calder points out that he numbered academics among his friends. Uh, Con Leventhal, who um, followed him at the job at Trinity, his lecturer in, in, um, in French, I think, uh, is now living in Paris, and they see each other all the time. You know, He retired deliberately to... Um, Paris uh, in order to um, help Beckett with correspondence and one thing and another, do the sort of jobs Beckett did, used to do for Joyce in the past. And uh, academics go to see him the whole time, you know, because they're interested in his work and they want to ask him questions about this and that, and he's always very cordial to them and friendly. But he's um, a little bit um, worried about the, some of the digging that goes on into his own work. When it actually touches him and is close to home, and he's not uh, interested. See, I think that all writing is, to a certain extent, an act of masochism on the part of the writer. There's a certain torture that uh, he's got to undergo, and uh, this torture is very largely um, examining things in your own life and other people's lives, and the struggle with how much you know of yourself you're willing to put into your work. To see academics going through this again in a rather different atmosphere and uh, going through your old torture. Mm-hmm can't be terribly easy. I think he's got a certain personal distaste for it where his own work is concerned, but he's certainly not uh, against criticism generally, and he has written a certain amount himself in the past. And in this interview for Kieran Sheedy's documentary on Beckett's life, the academic critic Hugh Kenner recalled his first meeting with Samuel Beckett. Well, chiefly the difficulties I went to to find him. Uh, This was 1958. Uh, Nobody had ever seen Beckett at that time, as far as I knew. And he had a reputation for never never answering letters. On the way to Paris, I had read a French detective story and learned in the detective story about the pneumatique. You could buy a form at a post office. It went through a pneumatic tube through the series of Paris, and a boy on a bicycle delivered it to the addressee and said, will there be any reply? I thought this might get him around the block about answering mail. So I did exactly what the man in the detective story did. I went into the, into the post office, I recited the proper line, was given a form, and wrote a letter, handed it over the counter, went back to my hotel and waited. About um, three hours later, a pneumatique arrived in the unforgettable, bleak Beckett handwriting, which you read by holding the page um, sideways and citing along the letters. 
And this gave me a telephone number that I was to call at 5 p.m. And the, the digits were 0011, perfect Beckett number. I called this number precisely at 5, and a charming Irish voice wanted to know, would he come to me or would I come to him? Which was amazing. I thought I'd inspect him in his habitat, so I went there. Uh, during the conversation, I said, I don't know if you realize how difficult you are to get in touch with. And he said, yes, I find that rather useful. It was some time before Hugh Kenner began writing about Beckett. When I did start writing about him, he wrote to me through the publishers offering the loan of three unpublished manuscripts, which I had never heard of and would never have been able to ask him about because I didn't know they existed. So he was um, ultra-cooperative. Apart from the fact that he would not supply information, he would supply material, he would volunteer material. Hugh Kenner outlined how Beckett would cooperate with the scholar. He would answer questions with great precision. He would answer questions about his books if they are the kind of question that a very careful reader could answer. He would say, the situation appears to be and it would be as if one scholar were reporting results to another scholar. It is not the authority of the author, which he disclaims. He will, um, he will talk about James Joyce, a, um, an almost obsessive topic. I've heard him tell three times in absolutely identical words on three different occasions the terrible story of his meeting with Ezra Pound in... Um, the 1930s and how Pound insulted him at something that left a deep wound. He, um, he would talk about powers. He would make pleasant and um, perfectly agreeable small talk. Beckett was always insistent that he would not give interviews explaining or attempting to explain his work. The work spoke for itself or was for the reader to interpret. Certainly I think that it's true that uh, one could never judge the importance of a writer or the importance of what he's done by comparing the the, um, the work to its original source, which might or might not be in his life or in somebody else's life. John Calder again. It is interesting from um, a critical point of view, but perhaps from the public's point of view, and he's far more interested in what the public get out of his work than what the critics get out of his work, uh, it is often better to, to um, come to a work directly, fresh, without a whole critical paraphernalia behind you, uh, so that you compare it with, with another work, or that you compare it an incident with things that might have happened in his own life. Because Beckett's work is uh, enjoyably, I mean, very enjoyable, if you come to it uh, totally fresh, without any uh, uh, preconceptions about it, and simply um, get out of it what is there. And I say enjoy, of course. It's enjoying Beckett is a rather special experience, because... Um, he literally puts an audience through hell. He makes them look at themselves and, and, and uh, their own lives and, and their own the, the lies they tell themselves and realize that they're lies and, you know, there's a certain act of suffering. But it's, um, it's a cathartic experience. You come out of it um, feeling a certain sense of relief. Also, of course, all of Beckett's work has a great deal of humour in it and can be extremely funny. John Calder, in Kieran Sheedy's and Andy O'Mahony's documentary series, 30 years ago now, to celebrate Beckett's 70th birthday, recorded John Calder's evidence that Beckett had returned to a creative period at that stage of his life, having been pessimistic about the prospect of new writing some few years earlier. I think he's changed in that he's come to uh, terms with life 
um, I think he's less worried about things than he used to be. I mean, he's, he's aged extremely gracefully. The last time I saw him, I found him in extremely good um, uh, metal. He was, uh, we, we had dinner and he was uh, rather optimistic about his future work. He said, oh, I've got quite a lot to write yet, I think. And usually in the past, he's felt that he was finished and he couldn't write any more and, and, and everything you know, was gradually coming to an end. In fact, he's had a very creative year. You know, he's got two plays just about to open in London, as, as uh, we're talking today. And the, um, these plays really, I think, advance not only his own drama, but drama generally, the possibilities of drama. Uh, it, he's going through an incredibly creative period, and uh, I hope it's going to go on for a long time yet. Oh, no, he talks. I mean, he says he doesn't give interviews. That doesn't mean that he doesn't talk. Con Leventhal. We'll go out very seldom. Used to go out a great deal more, but it goes out less and less, stays at home, eats with in family, with his wife. The odd time can be seen in the Closerie des Lilas in the late afternoon, where he would have a drink. Usually with a friend or rarely alone, and if he's alone, it's merely he's waiting to meet somebody. He has just one or two cafes that he, in, near where he lives, where he goes to, in, in an approved, normal French fashion, I think. Well, his health is very good. John Calder. You know, he was worried about his health for a while. I mean, he had a, a growth in his cheek. You can see it in the photographs of him from the 50s. And he obviously thought it was uh, malignant, and was worried, very worried about it. And I, he's not the kind of man that likes running to a doctor very often. So I think he just uh, worried about it in, in, in private, but it turned out to be uh, nothing all that serious. And uh, you know, he takes a lot of exercise. Um, he's um, I think uh, has come to terms with life very well, and he, he's um, turned into a first-class uh, uh, producer, director in the theatre. He's doing a lot of um, work himself, mostly in Germany. He's done several plays with the Schiller Theatre in, 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 in um, Berlin. He likes the conditions of German theatres, which is totally professional, and uh, there's no nonsense. You know, the actors do what they're told and uh, and uh, take an interest in the work and the whole approach is different from many other places. And he's produced his own work in, in Paris, and now he's been doing it in Britain as well. Who knows, one day he might go and do something at the Abbey. Beckett's last work, the poem What is the Word, 1989, was written in bed in the nursing home where he spent the last period of his life, suffering from emphysema, and it is thought by some Parkinson's disease. His wife Suzanne died in July 1989, and Beckett died that same year, just three days before Christmas. His greystone is simple, of polished black granite, with his and his wife's names and dates. At the foot of his grave stands one tree, a reminder of the stage set for Godot. I would like to hope and to think that Beckett is saying certain very amusing and ironic things about the pretentiousness which our philosophy, our theatre, a great deal of our way of life had reached in the mid-20th century the critic George Steiner. On a serious level, but this again is something a clown can teach one, he's saying, look, the luggage we've been carrying with us through our lives is much too heavy. And we all know, don't we, when we get to the airport and they start charging you for overweight. This is a man who says, why so much overweight? We can do with much less. But the way in which he does that is to show us that the much less, the simple words, the simple gestures, 
the barest and simplest plot outline, are again immensely rich. And I would like to link Beckett's work with that of all these delightful, sarcastic, mocking anarchists, clowns, dropouts, improvisers, who have been saying, look, the modern city, the modern complex crowded way of life is really a terrible piece of elephantine waste. Could we look again at our basic human equipment? And he forces us, doesn't he, to take stock, an inventory in happy days, the wonderful inventory, to find a broken comb in a handbag is, oh, just as great a triumph as Marlowe the Elizabethan saying to ride in triumph through Persepolis. Well, you don't need to go to Persepolis if you find a comb in a handbag. Suddenly it alters the world, combing one's hair, a triumphant morning activity which wakes the soul again. I think Beckett is a master of the elementary, and I would almost allow that notion in the word elementary which says simplicity. Beckett keeps saying, why say more when less already says so much? But what clowning there is in it. And some years ago, perhaps you know this, and I don't know that it's true, but it makes my concluding point, an American research student came up with something quite breathtaking. Monsieur Beckett, in his earlier days, was passionately intrigued by six-day bicycle races. The sheer lunatic effort and absurdity of the thing seemed to enchant him at the Velodrome d'Hiver in Paris. And there was a very bad bicyclist, a wretched young man called Godot, who always came last, long behind the pack. And this American research dissertation did show that the phrase en attendant Godot was a well-known slang phrase in bicycle circles in the Paris of the period. And he suggests that that's where Beckett got the title. I do hope that's true. We've been listening to a special programme curated from several Bowman Sunday 8.30 programmes made in 2006 to celebrate the centenary of Samuel Beckett's birth. We broadcast it tonight as part of our short season of work by Samuel Beckett. The archival and field recordings were from programmes by Seamus Hosey, Kieran Sheedy, Andy O'Mahony, Anne Walsh, Mike Murphy, Des Hickey and John Bowman. John is back on air at his usual time next Sunday morning at 8.30 here on RTE Radio 1. And next week we continue our Beckett season on Drama on One with The Old Tune, starring Barry McGovern and Eamon Morrissey and directed by Connell Morrison. The series producer of Drama on One is Kevin Reynolds. Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on one.